Good morning, church. Happy Chinese New Year to those of you who celebrate it. Um, our text for this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, um, starting in verse 18. I'll just give you a moment just to flick to this page. This is the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 18, chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him." Let's come before the Lord in prayer once more. Our Heavenly Father, this is a difficult text today, but we pray that your Spirit will be at work within us, that we may see the beauty behind difficult texts, that we may see you at work, we may be amazed at your gospel. Be with us now. We are dependent on you. We thank you for Jesus' forever intercession on our behalf. So we thank you that you hear our prayers. Be with me that I may proclaim your word faithfully and lovingly. And we ask that you may open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. And that we may behold Christ and we may be strengthened. We pray for those here that do not yet know you, that they may understand and just see how good you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Division. Very few people enjoy division, aside from my wife, who thoroughly enjoys it in the context of maths. But the blight that is societal division and polarization has been brought to our consciousness as we saw how broken our society has been the last few years. And almost everyone can recognize and agree how horrendous it is to be a society that is divided and polarized. And I promise this is not an ad, but the New Zealand Herald has a major new journalism and opinion series called The New New Zealand, Rebuilding Better, which started back in November and is meant to be running through to our election this year. The series acknowledges that the COVID pandemic has revealed that our society is broken and is in need of a rebuild. It is attempting to reflect on the mistakes that have been made and pave a path forward characterized by unity. Division has also been a problem throughout the history of the church. They range from divisions so consequential that they have official names like the Great Schism and the Reformation to interpersonal spats within local churches that is very common, that is a very common occurrence that is even documented for us in the Bible, like in Paul's letter to the Philippians between two women named Euodia and Syntyche. While division and conflict can seem exciting and can garner clicks and sell ads, this is not the desire of our Lord Jesus Christ for the church. Jesus loves peace and unity. In his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, documented for us in John 17, the night before his death, this is known as a high priestly prayer. He prays, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, I don't know whether you've ever reflected on just how highly Jesus saw the unity of Christians. His vision was that the unity of Christians should be like that between the God the Son and God the Father. That's why division in the church should be taken very seriously and somberly. Our predisposition as a church should never be towards looking at how we divide within our church or from other churches in our community or where we, or where we can divide, but instead our predisposition should be towards seeing how and where we can unite for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. And not just our church, but the global church should be something that we should be longing for and praying for in the same way that Jesus did. Yet, as we can see from our texts today, people disagreeing in the church is an unfortunate reality of the world we live in. And it can really hurt. Anyone who has ever been through a massive disagreement in the church leading to an exodus of people 
knows how emotional and distressing of a situation it can be, as it should. Often people read this text that we are looking at today and focus on what they perceive to be the juicy stuff. Now, the last hour, the antichrists, controversial verses like, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And these are the things, these are things that are important to flesh out and perhaps we have the opportunity to do that in the Tuesday Bible study at the Harrisons coming up this week. That's an ad. But if you become fixated on these juicy things, it can be easy to miss the heart of what John is trying to do here. John is writing to a church that had a large proportion of a congregation leave, and they are spiraling in doubt regarding their beliefs. They're wrestling with very fundamental questions regarding who they should believe. Can we trust the elders who have remained or those that have left? Are there legitimate concerns raised by those who left? They're wrestling with what they should believe. What they should believe. What is Jesus really like? Are we believing the right things about Jesus? Were we perhaps too dogmatic? And they're wrestling with the identity as Christians and their assurance. Are we actually believing the right things? Do we did we do the right things? Are we being divisive? Are we actually Christians? And John writes into this context to comfort and to reassure. He says in verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He says, I write to you because the things that you have believed are true. You don't need to wander. You don't need to waver. You don't need to doubt. He also writes to acknowledge the broken reality of the circumstances that they have found themselves in. In verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He articulates the real evil of the situation. It's not just a clash in personality. It's not just pride or arrogance that has led to this church split, but real evil, real malice, real deception, and he says, you have done well to overcome evil, to stand firm, to hold fast. You have done right. It is in this context that John makes some massive theological assertions. It's important to remember the point of studying theology is not so that you can engage in theological debates online or to be proven right or to be perceived as a knowledgeable person. The point of studying theology should be to encourage, reassure, comfort Christians, including yourself, and to protect the church. The study of theology should never be separated from a heart of love, as it says in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. So what is the nature of this deception that John is talking about? 
it is a deception regarding Christology. Christology is the doctrine concerning Jesus Christ. Now, we might be tempted to think of a big word like Christology to be something for academics and theologians to argue over. But what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you think he is? If you even have an inkling of an idea regarding an answer to those questions, then you have a belief about Christology. And that belief, says John, is either true or a lie. Is he a man in history that had some interesting thoughts regarding God and spirituality? Perhaps you think of him as a moral example towards, uh, to which we should strive and emulate, or a wise teacher, or philosopher, or sage, maybe a prophet, someone who has received divine knowledge from God. On the other hand, from what you heard of him, maybe you think he is a spiritual being of some descript, like an angel, or maybe he is a god, or perhaps he is the god. You might be wondering, isn't this all just semantics? What practical difference does it make? Can we not find common ground? Do we really have to get into the nitty-gritty of theology? Can we not just affirm that we all love Jesus and want to follow his teachings? And maybe this is just evidence that if we get too detailed, we will eventually find points of disagreement leading to division rather than unity like Jesus prayed for in his church. To which we should respond, no. The way to think about these beliefs about Jesus isn't so much that it is a dividing line within the church dividing Christians, but a defining line, defining who Jesus is. So this is about if you believe the real Jesus or a Jesus of your own imagination, the true Jesus or the Jesus of a lie. I'll take Ryan as an example since he's not here. But if you were visiting our church and I was telling you about what Ryan, our pastor, looks like and his interests, that he is most of the time a cleanly shaven man in his 30s, about yay tall, and he loves old music and old movies, and then you say, oh, yeah, I think I know him. Didn't he star in The Notebook and La La Land? And logic demands that he either did or he didn't. Our pastor Ryan either starred in the notebook or it was someone else. It cannot be both. And as it turns out, our pastor isn't Ryan Gosling. Similarly, John and the Bible clarifies and defines who Jesus is. So you either believe the Jesus of the Bible or in a different Jesus. And John tells us, this is not just something you can agree to disagree about. He says in verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In essence, souls are at stake. This is where the Christian movements that aim to unite different sects of Christianity or even religions that all claim to believe in Jesus is sorely mistaken. If anyone believes in a Jesus of a lie, 
they are worshipping a false god. So what does John say regarding who Jesus is? Let's read verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The other side of the coin here, then, of what John is saying, is that Jesus is the Christ, and anyone who denies that believes in a lie. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, it means quite a few things. But to specifically understand what John is referring to, we need to look at the context. And for this, we need to sidetrack a little bit. John is writing to a church that has come out the other side of a church split. We know this since he wrote in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these people that left, for all intents and purposes, at one stage, seemed like, like they were part of the church and seemed like they were Christians. For this reason, I don't think that the belief about Jesus that John was writing against was a denial of Jesus being God's Messiah, that is, Jesus being the Savior that God has sent, which was the main point of dispute among the Jews and the Pharisees when Jesus was on earth. I say this is unlikely because they wouldn't have been part of the church community in the first place or have seemed like Christians. They would have just been Jews. Instead, this group of people, they would have affirmed that Jesus is the Savior of God, but they had a belief about Jesus, about who he was, that meant, in essence, they have denied that Jesus is the Christ. So what is this belief? If you have been following our sermon series through 1 John, you would have heard me mention a movement that gained momentum in the early church called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a Jewish sect that had a belief that there was a spiritual world and a physical world. So far, so good. But they believed that the spiritual world was good and the physical world that is matter as well as feelings such as suffering was flawed and evil. And the supreme God dwelt in unapproachable splendor in this spiritual world and was too good, too pure to have any dealings with the physical world, the world of matter and suffering. And some of the Gnostics, as they were called, embraced Jesus into their belief system. The predominant view among the Christian Gnostics regarding Jesus was that a divine spirit of Christ came to dwell in a human body by the name of Jesus at baptism and then departed before the crucifixion. So this Christ did not suffer and therefore his purity and his perfection was not contaminated by the evil that is suffering. So for them... Jesus was not synonymous to Christ. Jesus was a man. Christ was a spirit that dwelt in Jesus temporarily. So for the Gnostics, Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus only embodied Christ. 
How does this compare with John's beliefs about Jesus? And for this, we need to jump around a little bit in this letter. In chapter 1, we saw that John wanted to make clear from the outset that that which was from the beginning. So what he is talking about is preceded creation, yet at the same time, John goes on to say, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was made manifest. What he is talking about, this word of life, existed at the very beginning of creation, but then was at one point in time made manifest. That it, that it, was, it was made visible and concrete. And this wasn't some inanimate object like a rock. It spoke. It moved. You can touch it. This was alive. John was talking about God who existed before creation. But it wasn't until Jesus that God was made manifest. That is, it wasn't until Jesus that God became visible and concrete. And if you flip in your Bibles just a little bit further along in chapter 4, you'll see this is exactly what John is affirming. He warns these Christians to not believe every spirit but to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He goes on, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Or as a commentator says, that is a clearer way to translate this, is that every spirit that, uh, that confesses that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh is from God. So Jesus is from the spiritual world, but he became solid flesh. Jesus is the Christ of God in the flesh. So John and the Bible clarifies and defines who Jesus is. And if anyone wants to become a part of our church but doesn't believe in this Jesus, we can't just sweep it under the rug for the sake of unity and say this doesn't matter because we all believe in Jesus. We can't because we don't believe in the same Jesus. You either believe the true Jesus or a Jesus of a lie. We may show them from the Bible the claims it makes regarding Jesus. We may strive to work through it with them, but we should never sweep it under the rug. It's important to be clear regarding who Jesus is because it defines if we are truly Christians. And this is essentially what John is saying regarding those Gnostics that left the church. As much as it might look like a church division, it's not. If you look back with me in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They were never of us. John was not driving a wedge between Christians. He was making clear 
who believed in the true Jesus and who believed in the Jesus of a lie. And he reminds them of who Jesus is and essentially says, you're right to let the people who believe in the Jesus of a lie to go. Remember, one of the main messages that John says to them back in chapter 1 was that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You either belong in the light or you belong in darkness. There is no overlap. They do not mix. They are mutually exclusive. There are no shades of gray or dim lighting. They are opposed to each other. What's more, our beliefs regarding who Jesus is isn't just an intellectual exercise. It has massive implications for our lives. And I'll just give two examples. A systematic theology book I was reading gave 10, but I'll just give two. Number one, it is essential for the gospel. And number two, it displays the beauty and glory of God. Firstly, it is essential to the gospel. The core of the gospel is about a holy God saving sinful humanity from their sins through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The mechanism through which it happens requires that Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. Now, at this point, I do need you to bear with me for a little bit as literally libraries of books have been written on these topics and I'm trying to keep them as simple as I can. Jesus needs to be fully man because, according to the book of Hebrews, so that he can be our substitute. In a primary school rugby game, if a player gets subbed off, you cannot then bring on an all-black. It has to be like for like. Similarly, the Bible tells us that when man sins against a holy God, it must be dealt with, and the payment for sin is death. And Jesus can only rescue us from God's judgment by being a real human, so he can act as our substitute by taking the penalty of sinful man upon himself. And we can be given his sinless yet human record. As the Heidelberg Catechism lays it out in question 16, question, why must he be a true and righteous man? Answer, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. The justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. That is why Jesus Christ has to be fully man for us to be saved. On the other hand, Jesus needs to be fully God because only God is able to bear the weight of God's infinite anger for all of humanity, humanity upon himself. As one pastor wrote, there is no way any mere human could bear and fully satisfy God's wrath. By nature, this wrath is infinite in quality. 
in order to bear the weight of wrath, it is essential that the Savior be divine. But also, in order to satisfy this wrath, he had to offer a sacrifice of such a value that God would be pleased to accept it. It is essential for the gospel that God, that, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. The second implication for our lives is that this belief in the God-man displays the beauty and glory of God. The Gnostic belief in a spiritual realm far superior to the world we live in is something that almost everyone can resonate with. It is the basis for many of the major religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. They all have an idea of heaven that is holy and pure, a place of absolute bliss, free from sin and suffering. Even for many of those who don't con consider themselves religious, when someone they love departs from this world, there is an intuitive belief that they are no longer in pain, that they are in a better place. In fact, this is the underlying assumption behind euthanasia and assisted dying, that this is a way we can end suffering. Hinduism and other Eastern religions have a different view. The ultimate aim for many of these religions is that the world we live in is essentially just an illusion. And the ultimate aim is to escape from desire and suffering and reach a state of absolute contentment, peace, and unity with ourselves, or a state of enlightenment, of purity, again, free from suffering. Behind all these beliefs is the desire to deal with suffering and escape from this world. The Gnostic beliefs we mentioned earlier fits right in. It maintains that the supremacy and purity of the heavenly realm and of God who dwells in this heavenly realm uh, it asserts the holiness of God, the incomparability, the incomprehensibility of God. He is too vast, too unknowable, too powerful, too pure. He dwells in unapproachable splendor in this spiritual world. Sinful man cannot look, up, look upon him, let alone for humans to inflict suffering or even to kill. And these beliefs would be absolutely correct. But the Christian assertion is that this is not all that there is to God. The scandal of Christianity is that we claim that this God, the supreme, pure, and holy God that owes nothing to us, would enter our messy and disgusting world filled with sin and suffering because of love. The scandal as of a good and deserving king leaving his throne out of volition to be among the commoners to be, and to be, even be mocked, judged, and killed by those he ruled over. I work in healthcare and at the hospital, and believe me, there are a lot of things that come out of our bodies that make the stomach turn. There are a lot of things in this world that are disgusting. And if we could avoid touching them, we would. But the holy, pure, powerful, incomprehensible God came into the world. And the first thing he smells 
is not roses or the fragrance of spices, but a manger, a dirty, disgusting feeding trough for animals that would not have been sanitized or cleaned with detergent. It would have remnants of food, perhaps even rotten food, given to animals and mixed with your saliva, perhaps even what they regurgitate. That was his crib. He sees people who are afflicted by leprosy, a transmissible illness that infects the skin and the nervous system, where they would have pus and different bodily fluids oozing out everywhere. The kind of person where those of us who work in healthcare would take a look at it. Our immediate reaction is to recoil. But this God leans in, and out of compassion, he touches them without latex gloves, and he heals them. For these people, it would have been the first time anyone has willingly and lovingly approached them, let alone touched them, because they were dirty. They were unclean. They were infectious. But it was a touch from a holy and pure God. His friends were the underclass, the ones who would have been lucky to have had a wash the last few months, let alone their clothes, who did not even have the means to maintain their hygiene. They would have stunk of sweat and urine, maybe bad, stale alcohol. Some would have smelt like rotten fish because they were fishermen. And he spent most of his time with them and ministered to them and discipled them. This is the holy and pure God that when a woman who was involved in the sex trade approached him in tears, a woman that even our society would look down on and judge, when she approached him, he did not think of himself as being too holy to be touched by her. He was not concerned for his reputation as a religious teacher to be associated with such a sinful woman. Instead, he loved her. He shielded her from the condemning eyes of those around them, and he told her, to the shock of everyone, your sins are forgiven. This is the holy God that washed his disciples' feet, the job that everyone dreaded doing on themselves because they would have been covered in mud and dung. He insisted that he gets his hands dirty and even told his disciples that he must do this. This is the holy and pure God who hung on a cross, suffering in tortuous agony. He died covered in nothing but blood, sweat, and the spit of others. This is our supreme God of unapproachable splendor who died a disgusting and agonizing death out of love for you, so that you may be made clean, so that you may be made pure, both morally and one day even physically, and so that you may be snatched from the domain of darkness and brought into his kingdom of light where he is. This is our supreme God, Jesus Christ. That is the scandal of the cross. But it is a scandal that displays how much better, 
how much more beautiful, how much more glorious our God is, that our supreme God of the universe would do this, that he would become man for us. It is unexpected. It is beyond what our minds can come up with. These are just some of the reasons why Jesus being fully God and being fully man isn't just an intellectual exercise for theologians, but has massive implications for our lives. And in our text today, John tells the Christians that he is writing to and tells us who have known this Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he says, You all have knowledge. Knowledge of this God from the day you trusted in him. Therefore, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, he says in verse 24. Never let go of this gospel. Meditate on it every day. Swim in it. Revel in it. Know how good our God is and how good he is to you and to us and to one another. And his promise to you is eternal life, that he will hold on to you into eternity because he is fully God. And if you are here today and you don't know this Jesus Christ, my hope is that you would have seen just a bit of what he is like today and know that you are never too broken or too dirty for our holy God. He knows your messiness better than you. And even Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like you. And he invites you to come now. Stop thinking you need to clean yourself up before you come because you need him to clean you. Stop wondering if you have done enough to warrant being accepted into heaven because you haven't. But Jesus Christ has done more than enough for you to be made right with a perfect and holy God. So come and trust in him. And if you want to know more, and I would love to talk more with you after the service. Let's come before our holy and heavenly Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son. We thank you that he did not stay away from us, that he did not recoil from our world. We thank you that Jesus set aside his splendor and glory and humbled himself to be like us in every way, that we may be rescued from our sins. We thank you for your love. May we rejoice in our salvation and give all glory to you, for it is not that we are deserving of salvation, but it is because of the depth of your love. We pray for your spirit to be at work in those who do not know you, that you would open their eyes to see your beauty and come and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>